Psalm number 24 this evening, Psalm number 24. I'm afraid that too often we marginalize our God. To marginalize is to treat a person as unimportant, insignificant, or of lower status than than the person really is. And I'm sad to see that it is not uncommon in Christian circles to think of God as, as our buddy. It's normal for people to minimize what God maximizes in His Word. You know, things like sin and judgment and holiness, those things are put to the side because, you know, some crusty old people might find those things important, but I don't. And so God probably doesn't either. We have moved into a culture of relativism where everything is is relative. You know, it's kind of your opinion. That's kind of how you see it. I have my opinion. You can have yours. There's no absolutes. There's no real truth that we can all agree to. You know, we, we see even the Scriptures we don't even see as actual truth. We take it as different interpretations. And I have an interpretation. You might have a different one. And so no one can really know what the real truth is. So we can all just come up with our own ideas of what what is true. So that when it comes to God... We have marginalized Him so much so that we think we can commune with Him however we want. We're like a soldier who goes to his commanding officer and you know treats him very irreverently, disrespectfully. You know We don't come to Him on His terms because He's our commanding officer and He demands to be spoken to in a specific way. Instead, we go and we talk to Him however we want because, hey... He, he, he's my friend. We would never do that in that situation, but we we often do it in when it comes to our communication with God. And the solution to this problem for us, again, we can't control what other people are doing, how they're communing with God, but we can control ourselves. So the solution to the problem for us is that we need to see God as He is. As God has revealed Himself. And this is what this psalm does. We see God as He is. And when we do, it moves us away from self-worship. We understand that, you know, like the illustration this morning, that the movie's not about us. We're just an extra in the movie. Instead, the movie is about God. The whole, the whole, all of life is about God and about worshiping God. Because He deserves it and demands it. And amazingly, he includes us in in this whole process that he wants us to be the ones who are worshiping him. And so we move away from marginalizing God, moving him to a lower status than he is. We we see him as high and lifted up and and we worship him according to the way that he wants to be worshiped. Psalm number 24, let me read it for us this evening. This is the Word of God. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For He has has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully? He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. We come to a psalm that is similar to the second psalm. That was a covenant psalm. This is a kingship psalm. It's very similar. We're acknowledging the kingship, the authority of Almighty God as king. And the author, as we're told in the superscription, is David again, as has been the last several psalms that we've looked at. It's unclear if he really is the author, though. Remember, that that part of your your Bible is not inspired. The little words right below the numbers, those are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so they could be wrong. And we have this talk in here about the temple. You know, coming to the doors, into the sanctuary type idea. These ancient doors that lead into the sanctuary. And so it seems to be talking about the the temple. And so it could have been written by someone like Solomon or someone later than Solomon. Um, and that's what it seems like, that this was used for a time when they would come back from battle and they would come to the temple and want to commune with God. But I actually think that this superscription is correct. I think it actually is a Psalm of David, even though the temple wasn't in existence during the time of David. You remember, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but God said, you know what, David, you're not going to build a house for me. Instead, I'm going to build a house, a line for you, and your son is actually going to build the house for me. And you remember what David did when he found out about that? When God told him that? He was humbled initially, but, but then he started preparing for the temple. Remember, he got all the goods that were necessary for the temple, got it all ready to go, and so once he died, Solomon just had to make sure that it all took place. Well, I think this psalm is actually a preparation for when the temple will be set up. And that David is is envisioning a time in which Israel does worship God in the temple when His special presence, the presence of God, comes and descends upon them, descends upon this temple and they worship Him there. In this psalm, we see that there is that it is no small thing to commune with the King of glory. When I say commune, I mean communicate, have a relationship with. It's no small thing to commune with the King of glory. And we see that in three ways. Number one, the King of glory is no minor deity. Verses 1 and 2. The King of glory is no minor deity. You see where I get the words, or the name King of glory. That comes from verses 7 and 8, and 9, and 10. So, all those four last verses all call Him the King of glory. It's no small thing to commune with the King of glory because He's not a minor deity. Instead, we see in verse 1 that He owns it all, doesn't He? The earth is His, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. The King of glory owns it all. First Chronicles 29.11 says, 
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, Yours is the dominion, O Lord. And You exalt Yourself as head over all, as authority over all. The existence of every person and every part of our creation is owing to God. Theologian John Frame wisely writes, The world cannot exist without God, but God can exist without the world. So, the King of glory owns it all. He is no minor deity. He's not a... Uh, He's not some small, localized God. He is the God of gods. Why can God say that He owns it all? Why can He say that He owns everything in the world? Well, because of verse 2. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Why does God own it all? Because He created it all. Verse 2. It's as if the city, if we could think of the world as one city, it's as if the foundation stones are the seas. That the world is said to have been established on the pillars of the sea. And so God is the creator of all things. All of the world, all of the universe belongs to God because He made it all. And so because He is the creator and owner of all things, then... Then he, can, then he can demand worship. We belong to God. You know, we, we are born with the idea, with a false idea, that we belong to ourselves. And we have adults in our society who still believe that because they're, they're, they're fools as the Bible calls them. They think that they belong to themselves, that they have specific rights and so on apart from God. You know, God's not my master. But you see, God is everyone's master. And and one day that will become abundantly clear at the judgment. But, But until that time, it doesn't change the fact that God owns it all. That we belong to God. Even though all people belong to God, can all people approach God? Can all people approach God in the same way? And that's what verses 3 through 6 are about. The King of Glory is no minor deity. And then number two, the King of Glory will not be approached flippantly. The King of Glory will not be approached flippantly. Verses 3 through 6. In verse 3, we have the standard of entering God's presence. Who may ascend into the hill? Of the Lord, who may stand in His holy place? So here's where we get to start to get the idea of the temple up on Mount Zion. There, if David is the author and he's writing this for his own people during the time of his life, then he's talking about the tabernacle. But again, I think he's looking forward to a time when they will worship God there at the temple in Jerusalem. And so David asks the question, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? How can a person enter God's holy place? How can a person come into the presence of God? How could they enter the doors of the sanctuary? 
This was the responsibility of, uh, of the priests to determine who could come in and who could not. They had to make sure that no one came in who was unauthorized or unclean, unpurified. All people had to come in, they had to have been purified, and they had to bring an acceptable offering, acceptable sacrifice. So the priests would have guards, so to speak, outside the door of the temple who would say, all right, let's see how you are spiritually. Are you able to even come in? Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Verse 4 gives us the answer. Who can do that? It is those who are pure in deed and in thought. He who has clean hands and pure heart. Here's God's demand. If you want to enter into His presence, you need to have clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands refer to... We can think about this. Clean hands refer to actions. And a pure heart refers to our thoughts, our motives, what's driving our actions, how we're using our hands. So God's people need to be constantly reminded that entering His presence is not to be done flippantly. God is holy and He demands purity. Now, we need to be clear that that this does not mean perfection. Remember, for the Old Testament saints, it did not mean perfection, that a person had to be perfect. Otherwise, no one could ever come in to the temple of the Lord. No one could ever go into the holy place. But we know that they could go into the holy place when there was an offering of atonement that, that covered over their sins, that, that propitiated them. And the same thing is true for us. We can't go to God in this lifetime. We would never be able to go to God perfectly because we're not perfect. That's not what God is calling for. He is calling for perfection, but it's, it's perfection that comes through the sacrifice that covers over our sin, not perfection inherent in us, right? So when He's saying clean hands and a pure heart, He's talking about a clear conscience before God, that we're meeting the demands that we can meet. We, we're not um, sinning presumptuously like Psalm 19 said. And we're asking God to reveal to us our hidden faults. Okay, God, where are there some hidden sins that I don't even see? Because, you know, sin causes me to put the blinders on and I don't clearly see my own sin. For the Old Testament saying, it meant that they would come purified, that they would have to be cleaned ceremonially, and it meant that they had a proper sacrifice. So here's what God demands. In order for us to come into His presence, He demands purity. Right actions and right motives. That's the hands and the heart. Now here's an example of that in the second part of verse 4. Here's an example of clean hands who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. In other words, he hasn't you know, sworn on behalf of God, given a false oath, has used his hand in a way that's brought, that's, that, that he's made a false promise to God. Okay, so there's an example of 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 how we ought not to use our hands. If we want to have clean hands, we're not dealing falsely. We're not saying, you know, I'll do this for God. And we're really not. And we can think of all sorts of examples. I'll 
talk about one later with the Pharisees. So we have an example of the clean hands. And then the next line, verse 4, and who has not sworn deceitfully. This is an example of the pure heart. This is referring to a person who makes an oath, but who has evil intentions in his heart. He doesn't desire to fulfill the oath. He doesn't desire to go through with the promise like the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, verse 11. The Pharisees in Mark 7, 11, Jesus says that they would make their their oaths with their money. And they would call their money Corbin. You remember? Corbin meant, this is dedicated for God's purposes. Doesn't that sound really spiritual of the Pharisees to say, this money right here, this is dedicated for God's purposes. And Jesus said, you have sworn deceitfully. You've made this oath that you don't intend to keep or you're doing it with improper motives. And the way that it showed up for them is that Jesus said you're missing the important law of honoring your parents, honoring your father and mother. You're not doing that. You know why? Because you've taken all that money that should be going to help your parents, to help honor them in a time when they're in desperate need, and you've set that aside for Corbin, God's purposes. Sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't help you in this situation. I have money, but it's all been designated for God's purposes. Jesus says, helping your parents, honoring your parents here, this is God's purpose for you. And that way, He says in Mark 7, you invalidate the Word of God in order to uphold your own tradition. So, here's an example of someone who is swearing falsely with his hand, doesn't have clean hands, and he's swearing deceitfully with his heart that he's doing this. Yeah, I'm going to to set this money aside for God's purposes when he's really not setting it aside for his own purposes. So God demands strict standards. Why can He do this? Remember, we've got to go back to verses 1 and 2 because He is the Creator and owner of it all. He owns it all. He owns us. He owns everything we have because He created us. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. I want you to see the connection between God's creation, God's ownership, and His demand for us to obey. The connection between our responsibility to obey and God's ownership. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Notice the the word there at the end, right before the last uh, clause there. For all the earth is mine. Why can I demand, the first part of verse 5, that you ought to keep my covenant, that you ought to obey me? And here's God to the people of Israel, because all the world is mine. It all belongs to me. And so I can demand whatever I want from you. Turn back to Psalm number 24. King of glory is no minor deity. 
And the King of Glory will not be approached flippantly. You see the second point further in verses 5 and 6, that those who enter into His presence receive His blessing. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord, the righteousness from the God of His salvation. We've seen God several times throughout the Psalms as the transcendent one, the one who is high and lifted up, the creator, the owner, like verses 1 and 2, and He seems to be unapproachable. You know, we, we have to have clean hands and pure hearts, verses 3 and 4, but apparently some people can enter because verse 5 says that when they do enter, they receive a blessing. What, what, what kind of blessing are we promised from God? Don't think of this as physical blessing necessarily or as you know mystical, bless you my son, that sort of thing. But think of it as God making your life fruitful. Now that may mean physical blessing, but, but more importantly, it is spiritual blessing. Because God can still make your life fruitful apart from physical blessing, can't He? You can have a fruitful, God-pleasing, joyful life apart from physical blessing, can't you? Jesus knew this very well. He lived a life of poverty. didn't have a place to lay His own head, He would say. And yet He knew the great blessing of God. He knew what a fruitful life was all about. And so, so many times we think, well, God's not blessing me. God's not blessing me. Because look at my possessions, or should I say the lack of my possessions? God is not blessing me. But that's because we connect blessing directly to physical things. Health, wealth, resources. And God's saying, listen, I can cause you to be fruitful apart from physical blessing. And that's a good thing, because when... The physical blessings are there. We can see that they come from God. And when the physical blessings are gone, you know, when our health fails us, and when our bank account is low, we can still be honoring to God. We can still live a joyful, fruitful life. Because it's not all about the physical things, is it? So we will receive a blessing from the Lord when we enter God's presence. So this is God the transcendent one, the creator, the owner, the one who demands clean heart, clean hands and pure heart, He actually wants us to come into His presence so that He can give us His blessing. And then notice this other parallel thought. He shall, he shall receive a blessing, verse 5, from the Lord, and we could include the words, and He shall receive righteousness from the God of His salvation. So the ideas of blessing and righteousness are, are parallel. And righteousness is, I would suggest, a product of communing with God. That is, that God helps us to become more righteous or He declares us to be righteous. He vindicates us. He shows us that what we're doing is right and good. Now, it's hard to know exactly what this psalm was used for, but some believe that this is the responses of the worshipers, specifically verses 4-6, through six, that the, the priests, are saying in verses 1-3, through three, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And then verse 3, who may ascend into the hill? Who can come in? And then the worshipers would respond with this song, verses 4-6, through six, those of us who have clean hands and pure hearts and God will give us a blessing and righteousness. 
And that's why we have in verse 6, we are the generation of the people who seek God. This is the generation, O priests. We are the generation of the people who seek God. Now I want you to notice the parallel thoughts here in verse 6. Notice, this is the generation of those who seek Him. And then we have this parallel thought, who seek your face. Okay, so those who seek Him in line 1 is parallel with who seek your face in line 2. So that means that this is the generation in in line 1 is parallel with even Jacob. So we don't have to think too deeply about what, what does this mean, that Jacob, you know, that Jacob seeks your face, what, what's going on? Jacob here is a representative of the generation that's listed in line one. This is the generation, even Jacob. It's just another way to describe the people of Israel as Jacob. That is God's people. Now, the point of this verse is that God's people seek His face. Who can enter into this holy place of God? It's God's people. The people of God whom He is allowed to have the clean hands and the pure heart. The, the ones whom God blesses. The King of Glory is no minor deity, verses 1 and 2. The King of Glory will not be approached flippantly, verses 3 through 6. And then number 3, the King of Glory is not unapproachable, verses 7 through 10. The King of Glory is not unapproachable. I used the double negative there to just say that the King of Glory is approachable. That's the same idea, that He is approachable, that He He wants us to come in. And so verse 7, there's no reason for us to despair. Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, because the King of Glory wants to come in. So that the King of Glory may come in. The worshipers now in the Old Testament temple have gained access to the sanctuary and all the people are awaiting now the entrance of the King of Glory. It's as if they're waiting for the Creator God to come in. And we understand that God is everywhere present, that He is always everywhere at one time. No matter where we go, it's not that God meets us there first or that He gets there before us. It's that He's always there. He's everywhere. But there is a sense in which He's not localized to one area. That he, His special presence is, is awaiting. That we as His people are awaiting His special presence to come to us. That's what the people of, of Israel were awaiting. And so this verse helps to encourage them. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. This might have been a helpful verse for the Sallies tonight. They had trouble with their garage door. <laughs> Lift up, O ancient doors. Be lifted up. What, what does this mean? It could mean that the gates are, are being personified. You know, the gates of the temple are being personified. It's as if the gates are hanging their heads in shame and despair because the King of Glory is not here. And so maybe David's saying that. You gates of the temple, lift up your heads. Don't sorrow because the King of Glory wants to come in. Or it could mean that the gates are just a representation of the people who sit at the gates. The people that sit at the gates. And we use this kind of language. We talk about objects as if they're real people because they represent a group of real people. Like when we say, you know, the White House has spoken or the courts have spoken. Well, we don't think of it as the actual building, you know, moving its mouth or something. 
hopefully. We don't think that way. Instead, we think about it as the people who represent, who are a part of the White House. The White House is represented by these people. The courts are represented by these judges. And so they agree. They, they talk. They, they, they have thoughts. And when we speak in that way, we're actually speaking about people. And I think the second idea is actually the correct one. I think that's what David's doing. He's referring to the gates as objects, but objects that refer to the people behind the gates. And so he's saying to these people, don't despair. Oh, gates, don't despair, you ancient doors. The King of Glory wants to come in. This is why they should be encouraged. Look at the second part of verse 7. That the King of glory may come in. Now some scholars have argued that this is the Ark of the Covenant returning from battle. And so they're coming up the hill towards Jerusalem. And they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant, the, the representation of God's presence. And the King of glory is coming in in that way. But we have to keep in the mind that there were times that the Ark of the Covenant was actually in the temple and God's glory was not there. God's glory had departed. It was Ichabod. You know, God's glory is gone. And so that this is this is not necessarily the Ark of the Covenant could be used in that way, but it's actually God's special presence coming back to the holy place so that He can commune with His people, the people who seek Him. Isn't it amazing in verse 8 that the King of Glory desires to dwell among His people? The King of Glory desires to dwell among His people. Who is the King of Glory? He's the Lord strong and mighty. The King of Glory is this mighty owner in verse 1. He's the mighty Creator at the, uh, in verse 2. He's the Holy One. He demands clean hands and pure heart, verses 3-6. through six. And in verse 8, we see that He's the victor in battle. He's the one who accomplishes the victory. And yet the same King who's the owner, creator, and victor is the one who wants to dwell with us. He desires to dwell with us. And so verse 9 repeats the call. Be encouraged that God wants to commune with you. Lift up your heads, O gates. and Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then he repeats the encouragement in verse 10. In verse 10. And instead of saying the Lord strong and mighty like he did in verse 8, he says, who is the King of the glory? It's the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is the Lord strong and mighty. He is the Lord of battle. These names are synonymous. And so as we go through this psalm, it's like the psalm is, is crescendoing to a point where we see this King of glory. He actually comes in having won the victory. And now, here He is. He's entered the gates. Even though God is overall, and He is everywhere present, He comes to us in a special way with His blessing and with His vindication when we seek Him with purity, when we seek Him with pure hearts and clean consciences, clean hands, So, when we think about God, when we think about communing with God, we cannot think of Him irreverently. We cannot treat Him irreverently. Instead, we need to recognize to whom we are speaking. 
recognize whom we are worshiping. I, I think often of my own time that I spend with God. And sometimes I spend time in prayer and I'm not very well rested. And I have trouble staying awake while I'm communing with God. And yet if it were a, some sort of political, dignitary, or some important person, maybe the owner of my company, the company that I work for, I wouldn't fall asleep while I'm talking to him. I wouldn't fall asleep while he's talking to me. And and so I, I think of this passage and think that of the times in which I often am irreverent to God. And and I could go on and on and, and, and maybe give you a guilt trip about having been rested well enough to hear God speak and to speak to Him. But I don't want to guilt you into proper... Worship. Instead, I want you to think about God this way. God made you. God owns you. And God is the victor. He, he is the owner of all, and yet He wants to commune with you. He wants to talk to you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Don't ever tire of thinking about the fact that God desires to dwell with those who seek His face. I don't think we think about this enough. You know, especially if this has become a way of life to us. It can become mundane. It can become ritualistic. As we just kind of go through the motions. Alright, I'm talking to God again. You know, I'm listening to God again because this is what I do. And yet we don't stop to think that there are millions and billions of people who have not been chosen by God, who don't know God, who don't know His Son, Jesus Christ, and who are far off from Him and are not communing nor desire to commune with God. And yet God has given you the desire to commune with Him, and He desires to commune with you. He desires to commune with you. The God of the universe. When I gaze into the night sky and see the work of His fingers, what is man? That you would be mindful of Him, or the Son of Man, that you would take thought of Him. And yet you have made Him a little lower than God, and you have crowned Him with glory and honor. This is our God. This is the one whom we worship. He's not to be taken lightly. He's no minor deity should not come to Him flippantly. Instead, we need to come to God purely with clean hearts, clean hands, and a pure heart. Don't think that God is unconcerned about your unconfessed sin. God is concerned about your unconfessed sin. And and particularly the sins of arrogance. You know, the ones where we know we're sinning against God and yet we're not dealing with them before Him. We, we know we have this pocket of resistance against God, but we're not dealing with it, with, with God, with our sin. We're, we're just leaving it alone and expecting God just to kind of overlook it, you know, because He overlooks all those things. Christian, read through Revelation 21 and 22 sometime. One thing that you'll find abundantly clear is that all filth, all uncleanness, all sin are outside of the presence of God. 
None of that impurity will be a part of God's city. And so, think of this life as preparation for that time. Martin Luther said that I think about two days. This day and that day. Always preparing for that day. Always working in this day. And we need to work in that way too. We need to think that I'm actually preparing myself for that day when there will be purity. When there will be no uncleanness in God's presence. So why would we not want to start working on that now? Why would we not want to, like we talked about this morning, allow the Word of God to cleanse us, to purify us, since we're going to be the bride, a part of the bride of Christ? Start practicing communion with God in purity now. That doesn't mean perfection. We cannot be perfect in this lifetime. It means cleansing your heart, having a clear conscience. And again, I want to emphasize what that means. That means not committing presumptuous sins. High-handed sins. I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Turning away from those and asking God to reveal hidden sins. That's the way we need to approach God. We recognize that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all those things. The purity that we can have in order to go before God. You know, now we can enter boldly before the throne of grace is because of the blood of Jesus. He bought us with His own blood. And yet, we need an ongoing cleansing. It's like the disciples who had their feet washed. Remember when Peter said, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter said, well, fine, then wash all of me. And Jesus said, but you don't need to be washed. A person who has been bathed only needs to have his feet cleaned. And that makes a powerful illustration for us as Christians. Hey, we don't need to go back and get re-saved. That's not the idea. But we need continual cleansing from the filth of this world as we're walking through the world and, and, and dirtying up our feet, so to speak. We need this continual cleansing. This is what Jesus models for us in washing the disciples' feet. This is what we need to keep coming back to. God, I, I have sinned against You. And I know that my sin has caused great damage to the person of Jesus Christ and his and contributed to his death. And I need to I need to confess that to you, first John one nine. And I expect you to forgive me and to cleanse me. God is Lord of all. He is the owner, the creator he is the Holy One, verses 3 through 6 and verses 7 through 10. He wants to commune with us. Lift up your heads that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. O great God, in highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts. Own them all and reign supreme. And conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists Your holy war. You have loved and purchased us. Make us Yours forevermore. Lord, we concur with the words of that song and recognize Your great worth
and that you are worthy of worship. You're worthy of the most reverent worship that we can offer. We want to come to you with pure hearts, recognize and acknowledge your ownership of us, and recognize your great love for us, that you would be willing to commune with us. We deserve nothing but your wrath apart from Jesus Christ, but in Jesus Christ we deserve everything that you give to your Son. We deserve your inheritance. Not inherent in us, it's because of our connection to Christ, and so we can't boast in anything except for the cross. Through Him, we have life. Through Him, we can bear fruit. Through Him, we can be pleasing to You. So we acknowledge Your greatness and want to see You come into our presence and to live with us, to commune with us. And we want to commune with You. Purify us, O Lord, we pray. Show us where we have failed You and help us to take seriously the times in which we spend with You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.